Let's drop the green flag on this episode of the Talent Tank Podcast with your host, Wyatt Pemberton, bringing you the best, fastest, most knowledgeable personalities in Ultra 4 and off-road racing. This episode brought to you by the Jesse Combs Foundation as a donation from the Talent Tank and the Pemberton family. Hey guys, it's Wyatt. Hey, before we get too far into this episode, I want to do a little bit of early housekeeping before we roll into King of the Hammers week. First off, this week, big travel week for all of us. Be safe, be careful, be cautious, think twice, think three times, hell, think four times. There's crazy people out on the road. Let's not be confounding uh, the issues that they have just getting down the road with us and our trailers. Be safe. I want to see you guys on the lake bed. Hey, Friday night, high road, Yucca Valley. If you can make it, let's do this. Really want to see everybody there. It's going to be a good pre-party with JT Taylor and Terry Madden at kind of the beginnings party of their new location. They're called High Road in Yucca Valley. It's right there on the main drag, right on the 29 Palms Highway. I don't know the exact address, but it's going to be fairly easy to find. Everyone will be circulating stuff on social media. Next up, the talent tank on the lake bed. Yeah, I'm going to be there. Hammer King is so gracious enough to supply me with a camera crew, and I'm doing quite a few one-on-ones or two-on-ones of looking back on the lifestyle with a bunch of different folks. Same way that we've been doing the podcast, hopefully the plan is the audio is going to be played across the podcast as well. So if you fail to miss it on the live feed as they play that throughout the week, I am getting the MP3s and they will be going up onto the website in the manner of which I get Wi-Fi access. We'll see. If you've been out to the hammers, you know that making phone calls can be spotty. So that is going to be questionable at best, but I'm going to work to make it happen. That said, that is all happening from... Thank you, Cody Wagner with LaserNet. Cody has been gracious enough to let me film on location at LaserTown. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate all the support and look forward to seeing some of you guys on the lake bed. And here we go. Let's roll into this episode. All right, here we go. Welcome to the Talent Tank. We are T-minus like seven days at this point from uh, King of the Hammers opening, Hammers Week opening, going live. As you clicked on this episode, you saw we've got the man. Literally the black hole of the universe, Dave Cole. We're here. Dave, you're live from the lake bed with me tonight. What's going on on the lake bed, man? Uh, yeah, I just moved into my new trailer. I've been, well, it's not even new. It's eight years old, but I just bought it from a salvage yard. I've been renting motorhomes for the past, you know, 14 years. So I figured it was time to have something that I didn't have to take my stuff out of. To step so, it up a notch. Well, yeah. for those guys tuning in that don't know who Dave Cole is, they live under a rock, but I've got to explain who he is anyway. Dave, you're the, the co-founder, King of the Hammers. You're former El Presidente of Ultra 4. We've got Ryan Thomas has replaced you in that capacity, correct? Yep. Yep. It's always good to, to hire your replacement and have them, have them be smarter and better than you are. It's awesome. Definitely better looking. Uh, that's an easy get. Still chief of Hammer King Productions. I mean, Hammer King is the one who brings us King of the Hammers, you know, the circus that is... And all the entertainment that that is. And last but not least, you are a bender. You are a tin bender. I am a tin bender, yep. Through and through. Lifetime. And those old school bastards that are listening, Pirate 4x4, this is Jeep Recovery Team. That's right. JRT in the house. That's a long intro for uh, for you, man. I, I mean, big guy, big intro. I love it. Well, so what's going on in the lake bed right now? Oh, uh, man, we are about four days into this, five days into it. So we have uh, the fences up. 
and we've already got a couple of the great wall fences up and the trenching's in so the trailers are on power and our Sean Xbox, our, our Memorial Sean, Sean Wilson Operations Center is running, up and running. So as far as race ops, there's the, the big tents already in place. JT's already confirmed the uh, the main first loop, so 78 and a half miles for, the, for, for lap one. So things are going really, really well. Killing it. Well, by the time this airs, you know, you guys will be almost done. I mean, hopefully everyone listening to this is just about wrapping up their prep, just packing up their trailers, just packing their bags, checking their uh, checking in on their flights. And... Finish prepping before you get to the lake bed? I no. never, ever figured that out. I don't know. Yeah, who is that? Who are those guys? I am the guy I'm the guy that would fix his Burfields the next trip. I'd fix the broken stuff I broke from the previous trip when I came back to the lake bed the next time. That's about how And based on stories that Bender has told us about you, you know, Rob Park, I believe all this. I broke a lot of things. No, man, I love it. Well, Dave, you and I, we've met, you know, we have kind of a a short and fun history. My first experience with actually you is I was commuting to work and rolling into a a night shift in downtown Houston. And you called me and you said, hey, this is Dave Cole. And you're like, I'm like, hey, I I know who you are. And you're like, hey, you want to come to California? Hell yeah, I want to come to California. Let's do this. And we came out in 2009 and raced uh, raced your event for the first time. That was really the first time. I don't really recall really meeting you or us having a personal time there, but I was pretty pumped to just be a part of it. Really, where we got a mesh and meet, and I found out really who you are, was 2009, Vegas Torino, Wayne Israelson Shop. I fly in. Jeff Knoll drops me off at Wayne's. I think Jeff's standing there, and you pull up, and you get out, and you just kind of stomp over to me and just give me this huge bear hug. And you're like, dude, brother, you're here. Awesome. I'm like, well, in all fairness, I thought you were Doug Bigelow. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. I had hair in 2009. I may be bald today. That, man, I should take offense to that, but I kind of don't because Bigelow's a pretty awesome dude. Yeah, Bigelow's a cool cat. You're good. No, you're good. yeah. And then, uh, you know, raced your series for a while, you know, hung out with you a while. I think we were in Kentucky at a, an event and I asked a question from the cheap seats, you know, like l- the back of the row, back of the stands. And you kind of looked at me like, Who's that asking that question? I'm like, it's Wyatt. And you're like, oh, son of a bitch. I didn't recognize you. We went sailing together a few years ago. We went down to the, where were we? The Leewards or the Windwards? I don't even remember which one it was. But Anguilla, St. Martin, St. Bars. We were on the same boat. I was pretty impressed with uh, your ability to tread water. You can swim like a mofo. That's because I'm terrified of drowning. <laughs> I bet you swam 10 miles on that trip. Easily. Uh, Okay. Okay. <laughs> the things that you grab grasp onto and hold on to, I'm the thing. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Yeah. Everyone's gonna remember those things. Yeah. I mean, or at least I'm gonna remember those things. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So, good trip. The camo was on our boat too. That was a good trip. Yeah. No. Absolutely. It's a great trip. Great trip, man. We need to do it again. We do. We need to go back. Uh, maybe when you're retired. Doug, Doug, Doug Jackson's Ultra Five trip. That was awesome. I mean, they just went a few months ago, or no, beginning of December. Yeah. Good stuff. So here we go. I heard you in the live show picking, you know, who was going to win various classes. And, you know, I think that, I always think that's funny to ask the promoter that or to ask somebody like JT that. But you gave your son such a hard time. And Dave's son is Bailey Cole. He's a multi-class racer. And you looked over at him and you said, which class are you even racing, man? Like, what is it? Tell me real quick about which class do you think Bailey has the best chance at in a week? Um, I think he has 
Well, he's 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 racing with Cameron Steele in the UTVs, and he's racing with Cameron Steele in his the Legends car that he has been campaigning. But Cameron will be the driver of record. I think Cameron Steele driving that car in the desert, if he can know to st- to step it back, which he does, he knows how to control a car. That's a pretty cool team, you know. Cameron running the desert, you know, Baja One Thousand champion, and Bailey running in the rocks. No, I um, think that's an amazing team up. I actually think Bailey's faster in the desert than he is in the rocks. I I tell him he needs to sp- pick it up in the rocks. He doesn't. He doesn't carry the speed in the rocks like uh, Eric Miller or Randy Slauson do. I mean, those are King of the Hammers champions. But if that's if he wants to attain the goals that he has set for himself, then he's going to have to step it up in the rocks a little bit. So I like how honest you are about your your son. I know how much you love him, and how much he makes you proud. But I I love the love of just the honesty where you can say, no man, here's here's your faults. Work on them. Yeah, yeah. If if you're if you're you're the twelfth fastest person in the world driving in the rocks, that doesn't make you. It doesn't give you a fault. It just just means you're not as fast as the two fastest. But I, I I love my kid. I'm proud of him, and I just I want the I want the best for him, and I'm proud of him being his own man. I mean, you think about it's kind of ridiculous what's happened over the last 14 years, and there's just so much crap that doesn't exist in our lives for real. Like there's all these people assumptions on things, right? And people that don't know us and don't know him or don't know me, and they just stand back and make assumptions because they see, they they just assume things. And uh, he's done all of it himself. I mean, I put him in a Toyota 4Runner, and I made him earn his keep and learn how to drive on his own. And he's a, turned out to be a, a great man, and I'm really proud of that. That's the thing I'm most proud of. He definitely knows the hammer is like the back of his hand. He grew up there all the time. How many weekends a year were you out there his entire life? Yeah. Probably a thousand weekends at this point in his life, he's been on the lake bed or in Johnson Valley. Yeah, I mean, this is our backyard between here and I mean, that's how we started wheeling. Is that's why I started wheeling so much is when him, when when myself and his mom got divorced when he was two, and I was fortunate to have him every weekend as as a single dad, and I I wanted to do something fun. I didn't want to you know sit there and sit in the house every every weekend, so I went and I bought a '86 Toyota 4Runner, and we went wheeling. Every single week in the Deep Creek, Deep Creek and Lake Arrowhead, Big Bear, everything up in the mountains. We were every single weekend. We went out Friday and Saturday camping, doing whatever we could just to be outside. And that's where he learned everything. He's doing that. So because next week is going to be so many photo opportunities, he's going to have a lot of interviews. He kind of needs to look his best. Are you going to get him to shave? <laughs> that's his problem, man. <laughs> I am not the guy. I'm not the personal appearance police guy because if I was, I'd arrest myself. He looked homeless on the live show the other night from Four Wheel Parts. He actually shaved before that. That's the crazy. No, I guess he shaved. We went to the score awards and he shaved for that. You're right. He did look kind of ratty. He, he walked out and I wasn't sure, you know, if <laughs> hey, at least he's wearing clothes that fit him. <laughs> there you go. He's, he's growing up, wiping his own butt and everything. Well, sometimes, yeah. Bailey, we love you, man. I, I'll have you on at some point for sure. I mean, but we're going to get your dad here first. Man, let's roll into this, man. Dave, you live in Southern California now. You've lived there for quite some time, but I know you're a New, New Jersey guy. I was all over the East Coast, actually. I mean, I've, I went to 10 schools growing up, and I lived everywhere from Michigan to Virginia. I, I lived in West Virginia when I was a young, super young kid. I was born in Germany. My dad was, an, was, dad was a retired lieutenant colonel from the Army. So between that and the steel industry that he worked in, my parents getting divorced from each other a couple times and everything else, that I moved around a lot. But Jersey kept being the place we ended up back at. And uh, that's where my grandparents were at. And so, yeah, from high school on, I was in Jersey. And then I started my career uh, with GE. I ended up moving to California. And I've been here for 20-some-odd years now, 21 years. 
What were you doing with GE when they did they move you out there or did you move out and get the job with GE? No, I started. I started. I was actually going playing football in college, and I got a summer job at GE, and they asked me to stay on full time, and then I just figured I was about ready to flunk myself out of college anyway, and I decided I'd go to school full time and work for GE, and that never happened. I never ended up graduating college, so I worked really hard with GE. I ended up being a a middle manager guy, like an operations manager for mortgage services. I taught myself how to program some software and. I learned Six Sigma stuff, which no one knows anymore. I guess it's kind of still popular, but how to run a business and um, at least from the operation standpoint, logistics. And I think that's what I've ever really been good at is operational efficiencies and logistics and stuff like that. I'm pretty good at. So You kill it on moving multiple moving parts. I mean, millions of moving parts, actually. You're killing it on uh, that logistics side. I know you've got some help these days, but back in the early years, the first 10 years of King of the Hammer, certainly not. And I was shocked to learn, uh, you know, knowing you and being around you, the the times I've been around you, I would have never picked you to be like a computer spreadsheet type guy and come to find out that you're pretty damn good with a spreadsheet. I love numbers. Numbers are facts. I like facts. I'm, I'm not very good at subjective gray stuff. I'm incredibly black and white, much to the uh, chagrin or annoyance of everybody around me because it's this way or it's that way. Nothing's in between. It doesn't really matter what's in between because it's either that way or that way. That's confounding to a lot of people, I'm sure. Hey, we're each our own people, man. And, and yep. the thing is, at this point in the game, the people that you're dealing with, they at least have about a 15-year track record with you. Yep. And know exactly what they're getting and how to handle that, how to handle themselves and what to expect. You know, they're not, you know, if they're going to come complain to you, they're not going to get roses, right? Unless their complaint's accurate, then they'll get probably a pro-terse response and then I'll go, oh, wait a minute, you're right. And then we'll figure out a way to make it right. That's it. And that's what's good about you. You have at least one brother, right? I have one brother and one sister, yes. You have a sister. I didn't know about your sister, but your your brother's Chris. Brother's Chris. Tree was his nickname back from his friends, and Sheriff Tree was what he picked up out here. He's a he's a rather large human being, yeah. Yes, he is a rather large human being. I'm the, there's, here's, we had to ask for unknown facts. I'm the smallest guy in my dad's side of the family for six generations. That's, that's a, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm six four three ten, and I'm I'm small by a long shot. Wow, yeah, your brother's he's a he's a mountain of a man. Like he's a mountain of a man. three six eight three forty ish. Yeah, he's a pretty big dude. When did he? What year did he stop volunteering out with you? I'm I'm the older brother. Oh, you can you're never the... beat up your dad, and you can never beat up your older brother. That's just the way it is. I don't know, man. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe in New Jersey. <laughs> what year did your brother stop volunteering out there with King the Hammers with you? It's been about three years now, four four years, I guess, something like that. Yeah, he was, the year the year after I was sick, so 2016, I guess, was his last year. He was a fixture on the lake bed. Yeah, I miss him. I miss him a great deal. Uh, he's just you know work and family. He's got it. See, he uh, he's got some young step step kids that he's raised at his own, and he's just you know he's been a good dad, and he's working hard and doing his career thing. So that happens. We all go through those cycles. Well, Chris, we miss you, man. At least I miss you. We miss you on the lake bed. So you played football. Any other sports? I played pretty much everything. Um, I played base, baseball and basketball. I tried wrestling. I was kind of sucked at wrestling. I was good at baseball until they started throwing really good curveballs, and I couldn't hit those, so I just focused on hitting people and playing football. I was pretty good at that. I can see how you would be good at that. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big puss, though. But, I mean, I was good at football. I was good at that. Played center and tight end and a little bit of defense tackle and had some fun with it. I miss. I, I, love, I love the team sports. It's kind of like we have such a great team out here, and I, I – I really enjoy team sports, and I think I, I think that 
that's really important. It's kind of odd or ironic to me that, that what we do now, there's a hope that many people that do this tend not to gravitate to, to ball sports and team sports. They, you're, you're not, a lot of outdoors people doing this, and that, that, that tends to be kind of a dividing line. You're like a team sport guy or you're a hunter-fisher guy. And there's a lot of hunter-fisher doing what we do, but I, my background was team sports, and I think you learn a lot in life on how to, how to work with people and everything else and how to get along doing that. No, there is a significant line of demarcation between ball sport guys and motorsport guys. I, I don't get it either. Like, I love at Hammertown on the Sunday before, you know, the Sunday that starts Hammers Week. You guys play the, the Super Bowl and the Jumbotron. That's awesome. Better when the Eagles are winning, but yeah. The Eagles were in the playoffs. They were in the playoffs this year. No, I know they were, but they weren't going anywhere. Uh, well, better than the Cowboys. Yeah, man, those those poor bastards. I know, like, Chris Summers burnt, finally gave up on his own team, burned his all of his gear, and joined the Chiefs. He jumped on the Chiefs bandwagon. I found that comedy. Cowboys fans tend to be bandwagon jumpers. I, there's a lot of sprained ankles in Dallas these days jumping off the bandwagon. You just you just bulldozed the entire tribe contingent. Like, there's 40 Literally, I could hear the emails coming in. Cancel my entry. Cancel my entry. Cancel my entry. <laughs> the, <laughs> Uh, hey, I'm right there. I'm right there with you. But going in there after, you know, we had a little discussion about sports, a little bit about your teams. I know where we cross the line from ball sports to motorsports for you is F1. And you and I have talked about this in the past. You're a massive F1 fan. IndyCar. I like IndyCar. And I've been to the, I've been to I've been to the Indy 500 like 13 times. Okay, okay, then I'm not insane. I'm sitting there thinking that you don't like road racing at this point. And no, it, it was IndyCar, not F1. I just, I, I'm sorry, they are different. I kind of yes. lumped them together. We had had this Pretty discussion. substantially different, yeah. So no, but we talked about starts. And this was oh, yeah. years ago. And you were like, yeah, that's why you know I'm an in- Indy fan. They used to do it that way. What I told you is the, sec- the 2008 King of the Hammers, the first big race, we lined the cars up three wide. Because that's how Indy does it, three wide. So it was whatever rows of three was our lineup. And then we realized really quickly that racers never show up on time, and it's usually the guy in the middle of that row. And you could never get his car into into place, and it was a complete cluster. So that got shot down pretty quickly. I ended up starting side by side after that. But the first year, of the 2007, we lined cars up on the grid three wide and then started them single file. And it turned out to be, for a guy that plans the operations logistics, turned out to be a pretty stupid mistake. But we, we survived. See, here's what I love about this story is how the rumors and the conjecture and everything that I remembered, and they were way off because you completely had, the, you, you've set the record straight and gone back in and filled in some details that none of us knew. My, fa- my favorite thing is when someone calls and says, someone told me, usually someone's an idiot. By definition, whoever the guy someone is, is an idiot. For sure. Always. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, and uh, JT is actually heckling me right now. And another misnomer, I never mooned anybody at the start of the OG race. That was not me. I've never heard that rumor, but I'm going to spread it anyway at this point. There was five spectators from the OG King of the Hammers race. One of them was from Washington, and he mooned the starting group. I waved the green flag, and I brought the beer. There you go. I also cheated. I cheated in the fair. I helped JT cheat in the very first race because there was no outside assistance rule, so it wasn't really cheating. But he broke his heim joint, and he went back to my trailer and got a heim joint from my trailer and fixed his car. So all this time JT talks about finishing the OG race, he wouldn't have done it without parts from a Toyota. 
just facts. He finished fifth. He five. Yeah, sure. He finished. Absolutely. There's nobody on this planet that I would rather go in the dirt with than JT Taylor. My absolute favorite thing is to go in the dirt and go do stupid adventures. So he never says no to those or he's the one asking you to do it. And you're the one who kind of sometimes have to tell him no. I don't know that's ever happened once. Have I ever said no? No. See, and that's, and that's the difference between me and JT. Like, I'm like, no, JT, I'm not going with you. I, uh-uh. I, I won't come back alive. But I'll tell you what, most of the adventures are lifetime adventures. Very, very few times have I ended up, you know, choking out on a dry turkey sandwich in Croatia. <laughs> just once. And just for the record, JT is in the trailer with Dave. J- Dave's just not having random conversations about JT without J- JT is actually oh, I do, sitting I there. I do that as well. It's kind of awkward. But now, right now, is JT is with us, so it makes it more fun. Sorry. So going to Indy 500, the, like the 13 times that you went, tell me about how that set the hook on you on motorsports. Uh, I just love the competition. And back then it was still drivers driving. Rick Mears to me was the best driver of all time. And it was the reason I thought he was awesome is because he knew his car and he knew how to make his car faster. And he would actively engage his crew to say, you know, this is how my car needs to be faster. And that's why he won so many races. And I also learned actually from Rick Mears as a young kid, this is crazy, but I learned a couple things. One, you and this is something I still struggle with today. It's kind of one of the, one of the things that I, I still am trying to be better at. But when people know you or think they know you, then your impact on them from the basic hello conversation or when they walk by you at a campfire is magnified a hundredfold than someone that's just a stranger. If someone thinks they know you or thinks that they know who you are or they're expecting to see you or they're and, – and if you blow them off on a simple walk by the fire and someone says, hey, Dave, if I don't engage that conversation – in a way that's going to fulfill what they're looking for. And inevitably that same guy is going to go back three years from now and hear you were an asshole next to me at the fire. And it's like, okay, well I had, you know, 17 cars upside down on a jackhammer and County fire was getting ready to close down the event. And BLM was, I had secret agents from BLM here and, and people don't know what's going on, but if I don't hit it, you know, you kind of, you kind of screw the pooch and that's important. I need to be better at that. But Rick Mears, when I was a kid, I met Rick Mears, at the Indy 500 and Gasoline Alley, because my dad was a volunteer at, at the Indy track, so we got to go in, in Gasoline Alley. I met Rick Mears after he'd already won three Indy 500s. He sat and talked to me for 20 minutes, just some 13-year-old podunk kid that knew nothing about anything. And he talked to me for 20 minutes. Cool, awesome, life experience. Three months later, I went to the Michigan 500, because I was a lucky kid that got to go some cool races. Walking through the pits, and Rick Mears stops and says, hey, Dave, what's going on? To me, a 13-year-old kid that he met three months earlier at the Indy 500. To me, that was remarkable that someone that amazing, that world-renowned, that that everything could remember that stuff, took the time to engage a kid again. That's that's uh, so I try to and I kind of fail a lot at it, but I try to I try to emulate that or try to want to carry that over and I don't know. Be appreciative of everything that goes on and, and the personal relationships you make. I think it's cool. So got way deeper than indie cars are cool, but well, I think just the striving to accomplish that is monumental. Yeah. So, anyways, yeah, indie cars are cool though. Watching Danny and uh, Danny Sullivan spin and win, and I like Danny and guys. I like Jose Garza. I like guys that no one else liked, but I also like Rick Mears. Rick Mears was a badass. I have two two things. If two things happen, that I will literally walk off the lake bed and not come back. If Rick Mears is the Grand Marshal and Foo Fighters play as the band, then I'm done. I have nothing left to do here, and I can just go. So we need to get Rick Mears and Dave Crawl like 
Yeah, if you literally all the people that want me to get out of this sport, all you gotta have Dave, Dave Grohl up, sh- Dave Grohl show up and play Everlong acoustic on the lake bed, and Rick Mears to come and wave the wave the green flag, and literally you'll never see me again. I will disappear tomorrow. There's your there's your formula. We're going to talk about your future and your future plans here in a little bit. I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon, but maybe not. Rick Mears is surprised. Yeah, right. I, I've actually, I've actually tried to be. I've had, had, I've drank several beers with Roger Mears at this point, so I'm one step closer. Yeah, we're getting there. <laughs> Moving on. What year did you move to SoCal? Ninety-nine. That's awesome. And you moved there with GE and worked your way up through. Yeah, I worked my way up when I was in Jersey. I I flew out to California and I told my boss that I was going to move to California. He's like, dude, you make twenty seven thousand dollars a year, and there's that's never going to happen. And I and he's like, you're he's like, you're never going to sell your house. You're never going to go. I'm like, you're going to buy my house and you're going to move me to California and everything's going to be fine. And he's like, that's that's never going to happen. And eighteen months later, they bought my house and moved me to California, and I was a I was an operations manager for GE. And I bought a house in Lake Arrowhead for $110,000, and and that's where I did. And now it's worth $6 billion? Now I sold that house for like 130 because I sold it in the middle of another recession. I bought it in a recession. I sold it in the next recession. I'm awesome that way. <laughs> I do really cool stuff, but managing money is not one of them. Did you ever kind of line this out? And my questioning, so I kind of prepped you for this, but my question is around, have you always had the entrepreneurial spirit that you wanted to be running your own show, running your own business and kind of in the the catbird seat on this and controlling your destiny? Or were you just, this happened, it got viral, it took off and you were excited that it did, but you've grown into those shoes. Which one were you or was it a combo of both? Probably much more the latter. I, I never occurred to me to own my own business. It never occurred to me that I'd ever have that wherewithal or that ability to do that. And I, I enjoy, I still enjoy working as a team and working within a team. So the people that, that we build to surround ourselves with here, it's not just by happenstance. It's people that want to be part of that bigger effort. Yeah, I never wanted to be like that solo guy doing it. I, I, I actually miss having a partner. I missed, I've actually missed Jeff being my partner from back in the day because it's good to have someone to sound stuff off of. I don't need to be the guy. I, I don't really have any, I don't take any really good pleasure about being the guy. It's just someone had to do it. So I did it. There's extreme highs, extreme lows with from being, being your own business owner. But man, I'm telling you, looking back, I'm sure you can see the highs and lows. But from the outside looking in, man, it just looks like the trajectory of King of the Hammers all the way from 07 to now has been pegged at straight up and just keeps climbing. Every year, you guys continue to outdo yourselves on every aspect of the experience? I think it's um, I think it's uh, pretty simple. I have a completely unrealistic fear of failure, and I have no ability to say no to stupid ideas. So I will literally, it's like I'm terrified to fail, terrified of it. So I go a billion miles an hour, work my ass off to never fail. And then when when it's like, hey, there's a chance that we could light up the entire desert and make a hotspot of the entire desert to make live cars and live coverage and every camera. It's $62,000, but it's never been done before, so I'm not sure if it worked. Okay, go. That's stupid. Ryan's sitting on the other side of the table here going, God, I need to get this guy to shut up and stop writing checks. And the reality of it is that's what I do. I screw up. I, we've probably spent Travis Walters here as well. Everybody's kind of heckling me on this one. They're not heckling. They're just looking at me like, yeah, whatever. But uh, we've probably spent a million dollars trying to make a cool live show over the years without that's not even including labor that's just buying the newest latest and greatest or even the most stupidest technology trying to figure out how to make it work and some of it stuck and some of it hasn't and trying to make it work in the middle of the desert with nothing yeah hopes and dreams and some 91 octane 
Dave, I think that's the one thing that many, many people around you, that, and you've surrounded yourself by these people, and the thing that they love about you is the fact that you have these huge ideas, and maybe they're grounded in reality, maybe they're not grounded in reality, but they're huge ideas, and they are one iteration or two iterations or three iterations past what people can visualize and see, and then you tell them to get it, get it done, let's do it, let's figure out a way to do it, and, and it happens, and it's yep. truly magical. If you refuse to refuse to accept failure, then eventually you'll succeed. So JT's in the room. So he, anyone that listened to his podcast is, can back this up. JT said to me, when Dave calls you and he says, hey, I've got an idea, I hang up on him. An idea he doesn't hang up on. When I say, hey, I got a dumb idea. When I say, hey, I got a dumb idea, usually they change their numbers. They don't even hang up anymore. They just change the numbers and I don't ever hear from them again. So, but yeah, no. Wayne Israelson, JT, Camo. I think you've even you've even gotten some of those calls. So yeah, yeah, yeah. And no, and I and I'm very grateful for every all those calls because they've always turned into something that has been, for lack of better words, I'm gonna I'm gonna kill this word because it's so good, but it, magical. I mean, we've literally been able to be so successful with everything that has came out of that noggin of yours and entertained and left their marks on society. I, I really, I really think it's awesome. The one thing that I love about you and discussing failure and discussing how you handle failure is because I swear, I swear, every time I've been around anyone that talks about their mistakes and talks about their failures and, and is open about them, they are the most successful ones because they've embraced them and spun them to turn them into something positive and not recreate that error in the, in the future, but continue with it. And it's the guys, it seems like, that aren't having those conversations or at least being open about the failures. They're the ones that continue to languish in those failures. And where I'm going with this to be long-winded about it is I like your mindset. I like how your mind thinks and how you've take on your failures and mistakes head on, spin them, and next thing you know, we have a bunch of success out of them. It's really cool to sit on the outside and watch how you work. Yeah, I don't know. I just, it's. I guess it just comes back. As much as I'm terrified of failure, I I'm okay with the failure because it's just an opportunity. Every failure is an opportunity to be better. And it, and if you don't, if you're not not willing to risk it and get off the bench and and roll the dice and go, that's the that's the real failure. I wouldn't. I couldn't. And that's what I did. I mean, that's working the jobs that I work. You know, it's just like you just kind of just worked. But if you can, if you get up every morning and you're not really sure how the day's going to end, that's a cool place to be. I think. I absolutely agree with you. So back to family and wheeling and introduction to how you got in with the benders back in the day. You're in SoCal. You moved out there in 99. I think Bailey's what? Bailey's like Bailey 22, 21 now. Yep. He was two then. Two when we moved to California. He was probably four when I got really, really into wheeling. I mean, because I, I was wheeling in, in, in 99, 2000. In 2001, I started going to rock rolling competitions when it started getting big out here. And uh, we ended up going to comps, and he go, he went with me every single one. Survey boy, Sean Bootsma, the guy that still runs the radio here, he had a job that he had a he had a toy hauler. So he, had a, he was the only guy I knew that had a toy hauler. I built a race car for twenty five grand that we ended up winning the world championship with. It's the first thing I ever built in my life. Bender finished welded because I couldn't stick metal together to save my life, but I designed it all. And he told me like you know the basically the parameters would make a good suspension. So I you know went as far as I could in each direction to make the right suspension and. It was a cool experience, and Bailey would go to every single comp with me, and we'd walk around, and walk, and it, it was cool because, you know you know how when you were a kid or watching kids now, and they'll have, like, their Matchbox cars, and they drive over the, the couch cushions and all that kind of stuff? Bailey would have this, this, little, this little Tonka car thing, and we would go, to, go out and start walking courses for comps, and he'd just be sitting there, and he would start seeing lines that I just didn't even see. And Little Rich Klein was awesome at making great courses, but they always had like an escape route, like thing that like the off the wall idea to get through it. And it seemed like Bailey just saw that at five years old. He could just see that line. 
And me and Wayne would be over here going, okay, we're going to go here. We're going to take this back up. We're going to go over here and do this. And they'd be like, what if you go, what if you back into the course and go way over there, all the way up by there, and then do a reverse rear burn? And I'm like, yeah, that'll work. Yeah. <laughs> and we'd either do it or we'd roll, but it was fun. <laughs> it was cool. And it was great to experience that with him. And watch him grow. I mean, and then here he is. He's he's taking the the green here in in a week on multiple classes. I'm. It's been really cool. I mean, the, my first time seeing him was 2009. He and Cody Knoll digging holes on the just off the start line. Another that's another myth. It didn't happen. Dave, it was behind my trailer. It was it behind happen. my trailer in the shirt. Bailey wasn't there. Bailey wasn't there. Well, then who was with Cody then? I don't know. I know Bailey wasn't there because the Bailey had a Suzuki Samurai at that point as a seven-year-old or nine-year-old, 11-year-old, whatever, and he was stuck on the other side of Lake Bend to Samurai. And he was terrified to come and tell me that he got the Samurai stuck on a big, uh, a, he basically drove a Samurai up on one of those dirt, like where a bush is at, and it's all like a mound of, mound of sand. And we couldn't find the samurai for two days, and it turns out it was stuck on the other side of the lake, but he was too terrified to come and tell me that he got the samurai stuck. Now, I'm going to text Cody Knoll after this. I'm like, Cody, you got to fill us in. Who helped you dig? Yeah, it might have been one of Bender's kids. <laughs> and, and, and so uh, Bailey's taking taking the heat there all this time for for 12 years now. Yeah, oh well. And we're going to perpetuate it. It's good. It's, bad. it's a good story. You start wheeling with Wayne and competing with Wayne. Israelson. The month after we won Worlds, um, me and Brian Ellinger won Worlds, and I wasn't driving, by the way. Everybody, like, it's kind of perpetuated. And maybe I kind of perpetuated the myth, but I was not driving when we won World Championships. Brian Ellinger was driving. I was spotting. And I actually built that car not to drive. I thought spotting was the harder thing to do. It was the more important part of that equation. So I built that car for Larry Zager to, to drive, and we blew a motor before the first comp, and Larry's like, this is a waste of my time. I'm out. So I called Brian Ellinger, who owned Diamond Axle, and I asked him to drive for me. And by the end of the year, we won Worlds. And I left there, and I went to Cougar Buttes for we, the We Rock Women's event. And Megan Klein was driving my car. Rich's sister was driving my car. And uh, I pulled up and parked, and Wayne was parked next to me. I'd never met him before in my life. Got out, and he's like, you're Dave Cole. And I'm like, uh, okay. And he's like, and we just started chatting. And Wayne's just, you know, turns out to be one of my best friends on the planet. But he's like, if you, he's like, where are you working on that car at? I'm like on my deck in Lake Arrowhead. I didn't have a garage. I didn't even have an enclosed trailer. I kept my race car under a tarp in the snow in Lake Arrowhead. And he's like, well, if you ever need a place to work on that car, you can bring it down to my shop in Menifee and can work on it there. I spent the better part of the next six months driving back and forth between Arrowhead and Menifee every night to work on a race car or rock crawler back then. We ended up becoming fast friends and then we started competing together and to the point that we're just, you know, I spend every Christmas, every Christmas morning, I'm at, or Christmas afternoon, I'm at Wayne's house. Good times. Yeah, I remember being in his shop and kind of getting the, you know, the dime tour in his shop. And he had like the molds for the fiberglass for. From the FJ Cruiser. We did an FJ Cruiser thing. When the Cruiser first came out, I thought that would be the way that I could finally get Toyota to sponsor me. I'd be have the only guy with an FJ Cruiser body. So I did that. It didn't work. I never got Toyota money. But you did get Bobby Long and Interco. You know what? Bobby Long. Another phenomenal. One of the cool things about doing this, as long as I've been doing it and being involved the way I am, is you get to, it's all about the people. And Bobby Long was one of those just incredible people that you meet in life. And uh, I remember he, the reason he sponsored me originally is because I, I bought, remember when, when Bobby first started selling Burfields and he came on Pirate and he was in the back of the magazines with lifetime warranties on his Burfields, his Longfields. Well, I was breaking Burfields like, like it was, like it was going out of style. I'm talking 30 a year. I was breaking Burfields. So I bought Longfields and started breaking Longfields and about six or seven replacements in Bobby basically told me, I'm not replacing your Burfields or your Longfields anymore. Yeah, he didn't know me. I was just a guy. I wasn't a Tim Bender yet. I was just a guy breaking crap. And uh, 
Bobby's like, I'm not replacing your Burfield. So I went on Pirate. I'm like, F Bobby Long, F this lifetime warranty. This is crap. You're going to sell a lifetime warranty. You should back your lifetime warranty. And I didn't care. I just let him have it. I was nobody. I was a guy wheeling. Well, Bobby knew John James. He knew he's a Tim Bender. He knew that me and John were friends. So he called John James. He's like, make that kid Dave. That, maybe that guy, make that guy Dave just shut up. He's bothered. He's messing up my business, blah, 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 blah. And John's like, Bobby, if you want him to shut up, you better put a good product in this car and stop, you know, don't jack him around. And he's not, he's not saying anything wrong. So Bobby developed the 30 spine, the, the 30 spine berf. And he, he sent me the first one and he asked me to run it and I couldn't break it. And I went on back on Pyro. I said, Bobby's built a better product and this is what I've done with it. And here's some me doing some stupid crap. And uh, when I built that, that pro mod car, I decided to do it. It was a 2.7 3RZ motor and it had Bobby's Burfields in the front. And everybody had, you know, spider, everybody was starting to build Spider Trek stuff. And that was like the super bling. A, a Spider Trek 609 was the stuff, like it back in the day, right? And now that's just a Spider Trek's housing. Everybody knows it as that. But there was a that, that nine inch 60 hybrid back then was a big deal. And I ran Burfields with Toyota 8.4 inch diffs and we won. And the next year, Bobby's, Bobby sends me this, calls me up. He's like, hey, Dave. Hey, mister. Hey, mister. Hey, hey, Bobby, what's going on? You still got that piece of shit truck and that piece of shit trailer? Yeah, Bobby, thanks for noticing. I had an 86 F-250 that I got from Robert Foster, Mr. Roxy. I got that from him after I wrecked it. You let me borrow it, and I got hit by I got T-boned by somebody. The insurance claimed it out, and I got this 86 F-250 for free from Robert, but it wasn't much of a deal because only the small fuel tank worked, and I went through three quarts of oil for every tank of gas, but it was the best car I owned. Still one of the best cars I've owned, but um, that was my tow rig, and I had a trailer that I traded for two stock Burfields that that's what it was worth when I traded it for, and then a tree fell in the back of it and crushed it, and that was my trailer. So everybody that still thinks that to this day, that's never a misnomer, that I'm rich and have all this money, that was my lifestyle then and hasn't changed terribly much. Bobby calls me up and he's like, well, go buy a trailer. I'm like, Bobby, I have money for a trailer. He's like, I didn't say anything about money. Go buy a trailer. So I found a trailer in Arizona. I told him I found a, a, a Pace trailer in Arizona. He's like, well, why'd you go to Arizona? I'm like, because it was $3,000 cheaper than here. He's like, it's my money. Go get a trailer. I'm like, Bobby, I already found this trailer. I'll go get it in Phoenix. By the time I got to Phoenix, Bobby already paid for the trailer. Came back. The next day, literally the next day, I had an envelope in my in my mail with a check for $5,000. It's from Bobby saying, keep doing what you're doing. This is for your season. The next month, I got another check for $5,000. And I'm like, Bobby, you, you already sent me a check for five grand. He's like, you think I'm an idiot? I know what I'm doing, mister. You keep doing what you do, and I'll do what I do. And uh, he took care of us, and we did our best to support him and, and look after him. And his only request is, don't ever sell that trailer and keep my stickers on it. So I've never sold that trailer, but Robert Foster has that trailer now, and, it's, and we put new Longfield stickers on it every couple of years. And uh, I miss that guy. He was a... He was a badass guy, and um, he unfortunately had some really big sicknesses that took him out. But he fought really hard, and man, we're worse off for not having him around. Yeah, I agree with that. And and yeah, that trailer—I remember seeing that trailer parked at Wayne's. <laughs> yeah, it was there. Yeah, Bobby left us in about what 2015, four about or five that, years yeah. ago. Tina still comes down every year, King of the Hammers, and makes blankets for the volunteers, and bakes us or cooks us chili, and she calls me up every three or four months good to hear her voice and yeah she used to send Luhan who was my wife at the time she would send her gift cards on her birthday and Christmas to Applebee's for some reason she figured Luhan liked Applebee's like in one of those sure I like Applebee's what well, turned out that Tina thought it was her favorite restaurant so she would send her $50 gift cards just saying I'm sure he's in the shop and doesn't take you out anymore so make him take you out for dinner and she would so so 
she would still send those gift cards and just good peoples, just really good peoples. And you have, you know, surround yourself by good people. And I think you've continued to do that even at that point. Um, I, if, if I, you know, I was actually talking to somebody else about doing this show and I was talking, I think I was with Travis Brake and Derek, Derek Baker there tonight. And we were, I was doing the questionnaire for the show and you know, I'm not going to die rich, but I'm going to die with the a lifetime of memories surrounded by some of the best people on the planet. That's all I'll ever need. I think you have to adjust your definition of rich. It's not money. Cheers. Yeah, right. Yeah, I think you're living it. I think there's a lot of us think you're living it. A lot of us are very envious of uh, what you're accomplishing. You're on the lake bed right now. We're all waking up tomorrow and going to work. Yeah, but you're going to all be here pretty soon, which is pretty damn cool. <laughs> it is pretty cool. I'm with you. So outside of Bobby Long, though, uh, tell us the, the Interco story. How did you get, get them to the table to start pushing behind you? Another dumb story. I go to Off-Road Impact before Off-Road Expo was a thing. Off-Road Impact was a thing in Las Vegas. So I went to Off-Road Impact, and there was a lady named Allie. And I'll forget Allie's last name. Allie LeBlanc. Boo LeBlanc was the operations guy, and Allie was the marketing director for Interco. They worked for David Guidry, who was the owner of Interco. Camo. You know, everybody knows Camo. Camo was with me. We were walking around, and he's like, I'm going to introduce you to Allie LeBlanc. So we met Allie, and I needed 37-inch tires to compete on. And they had M, uh, the, um, oh, man, the MRTs. MT, M, M, yeah, the MRTs, because MTRs were the Goodyear. So MRTs were, were the, the Trexus MRTs. They make 20 tires in a, in a, in a shot in their press, and they make M&H dra drag tires as well. And they screwed up, and they filled the vat or the press machine with drag race compound and made 20 37-inch Trexus M MRTs by accident, completely by accident. And they had nothing. They could not. They did not not know what to do with it. I'm like, well, let me run those things, and we'll find out what we can do with them. And they were so soft. They were like pencils or pencil erasers. And I learned a little bit about tires over the years. And you know, BFGs were remarkable because they didn't provide a rebound. Like when you hit a rock, they didn't rebound off the rock. And uh, the MRTs weren't very good at that. They were kind of like a bouncy ball, but there was nothing stickier than those tires. And when we were on a, like a concrete course like that, like Worlds was that year, you couldn't get, you couldn't beat them. I mean, like literally everything they touched, you had instant traction. So yeah, we were the first sponsored Interco rock crawler. And um, in the process of doing that, I convinced David Guidry that we should this is another one of those failed entrepreneurial moments, right? Everybody wanted, you know, remember back in the pirate days, everybody wanted a sticky SX or a sticky IROC. And they kept talking about it. And so I went to David Gidry and I said, how much will it cost? How many tires do you have to make to run a run a private a private run? And he's like, well, you need to buy 500 tires. And I had no money, but this is exactly like everything else. I had no money at all. Go ahead and make them. And he's like, what? I'm like, make them. I want 500 tires. Well, that's going to be, and it was like $20,000 or whatever it is, right? And, you know, $20,000 is like literally half my income at that point. And I'm like, I don't, I don't care. Make it. I got it. And so uh, anyway, I'm doing the math wrong. Is that $200,000? Whatever it was, was a big number. Bottom line is uh, I had no way to pay for it, but I knew that I could sell them. And we got all the way through the process of him ordering it. And then David Goodry calls me and was like, you sure you can sell these 500 tires? I'm like, I'm positive I can sell them. I could sell, I could sell 800 tomorrow. And he's like, well... Then I'm going to make them and I'll sell them myself. I'm like, <sighs> and I really got, I got asked that of my own idea. And uh, it was okay. I mean, in the end, I wouldn't have been able to, I really can't sell anything. I pretty much suck at selling. I would have given all the tires away because that's what I do. And uh, I would have lost all the money. But they were a cool tire and they're still being made. And the Gidrys are really cool. And it was a pleasure working with them. I remember our first contract with King of the Hammers when Jeff was my partner. The first contract we ever had was BF, was BF Goodrich. They were our official tire. And in the contract, it explicitly said that I had to wear a BF Goodrich hat for the week of the event, but the other 51 weeks a year, I could wear an Interco hat. 
And that was written in the contract. That's comedy. You mentioned Jeff a couple times, and we're talking about Jeff Knoll. Jeff and you met somewhere around this this era, working out of when you were working at Wayne's shop, prepping your. It was before that, just before that. Um, I met. I it was a weird story. Is that I uh, I wrote a computer program, software program for Jeff's stepmom to manage her janitorial supply business in Lake Arrowhead. Completely one off. Like I was between. I had gotten fired from my job with GM after the job with GE. Because I told the vice president he was a crook. Turns out he was a crook, but you still can't tell him that. And uh, so I was unemployed, and I was basically hawking computer programs that I would develop just right in Microsoft Access and Lake Arrowhead to try to help people and try to pay the bills. I wrote this, you know, tracking toilet paper rolls for, for Noe Noel, Jeff's, Jeff's uh, stepmom. He was doing CRCA, and he wanted a computer program built. And she said, you should talk to this guy, Dave. He's on that pirate 4x4 like you are, and you guys should find each other. So he called me up and asked me to write a computer program. And another thing I, I couldn't do, I wasn't smart enough. So I had to have dinner with him and tell him that I couldn't do it. That I, You know, that here's the problems that I see, and maybe you find somebody better than me, but I can't do it for you. And his the software was a, based around kind of racing, but not really. I'm like, why don't we just go racing? And he's like, what do you mean? I'm like, we'll just go racing. At that point, I'd already learned how to do permits with BLM because of the Timiter Jamborees we were doing in Johnson Valley. I knew how to deal with BLM. I'm like, I'll get the permits. You help me run the business, and we'll make a race at, in Johnson Valley. And at that point, he was selling a plumbing contractor business, and he wanted to wait one more year. And, of course, I'm about as patient as, well, I'm not. I can't even Man. say the word patient. It's the first time I've ever think I've actually used it in a sentence. And so uh, you certainly can't spell it. I definitely can't, <laughs> can't spell, spell it. <laughs> I spell patience N-O. So uh, um, I'm like, no, we're going right now. we got to do it right now. And XRA was really catching fire. I'm like, this is the time, man. They're going to someone else is going to come out with this idea. We got to go now. And Jeff's like, no, I'll do it next year. So I came out and did the OG race on my lonesome. I mean, it was me and off-road Joe who ended up being a Tim Bender. And I want to think that's it from a worker perspective. There's a guy... There was a guy with a samurai, off-road Joe, or D- Joe the Duck Slayer was his pirate name. He, like, randomly found me in Johnson Valley and told me he would help us. And there was three guys. We did the entire race with three guys. And 12 racers? 12 guys. Another thing. There's not 13. That's JT's fault. That's 100% JT's fault. He's pointing at me. He's flipping me off. He's doing all kinds of stuff right now. He doesn't have the balls to actually say it wasn't him, but it was him. And it was because he made the T-shirts that said OG-13 on it. And quite honestly, OG-13 sounds way better than OG-12. So they're OG-13. You're so completely full of shit. (laughs) Not full of shit at all. This is one thing I'm positive about. I forget a lot of crap. I don't forget that. There was 12 guys there. How can I make it up? It's not like I disappeared a 13th guy. There There was 12 guys. You might have asked me how many. I might have told him 13, but I don't remember that. And my story is way better if it's somebody else's fault. So. I feel a cage match coming on. Oh, I would lose. JT would stab me. He's already done it. He's literally stabbed me, drawn blood. He's a violent, violent man. He's a veteran, and I'm thankful for his service. But he's kind of scary to be around sometimes <laughs> because he's a violent, violent man. I mean, <laughs> I'm having a hard time containing my laughter here because I know I'll have to edit it out because it's so bad. Oh, JT, this is fun that you guys are in the same room together. It's very rare that we're, if we're in the dirt, we're usually in the same room together. It's a good place to be. And now a word from our sponsor, the Jesse Combs Foundation. Hey, today we have on Dana Wilkie from the Jesse Combs Foundation. She's on the board, and she was a lifelong, really close motorcycle riding friend of Jesse's. How are you doing, Dana? Hi, Wyatt. I'm great. Thanks for having me today. Oh, man. So I heard 
that Brad Christensen of Rufus Racing won that eBay spot that had been donated by Bart Dixon. We've got, uh, yeah, we Rufus Racing won the won the um, won the bidding, and we raised they raised uh, over fifteen hundred dollars for the Jesse Combs Foundation. So thanks so much for that as a shout out. We really appreciate that. Those guys are Texas guys, so I'm really really proud and happy to hear some some Texas guys threw in uh, threw in and supported the Jesse Combs Foundation the way they did. Really proud of Brad and and all the other guys there at Rufus. It was awesome but from for the for the donation from Bart Dixon and for the the bidding from Rufus. That was we really all that support is greatly appreciated from the foundation. So Dana, you and Jesse were close friends. I know you guys were roommates at one point, and then you told me a couple really cool stories about you guys riding motorcycles together. Yeah, thanks, Dwight. It was um, Jesse and I. Man, we uh, our friendship was fast and furious. That's for sure. Uh, I met. Jesse, when I was working for Harley Davidson, and the two of us really bonded over two wheels. So I know this is a, a four wheel off road audience, um, but that, you know, Jesse played in so many different arenas and was an inspiration and a trailblazer in a lot of different arenas. And I was fortunate enough to connect with her through motorcycling. So Jess and I crossed the country on two wheels, ride next to each other several times. So one of my favorite trips with Jesse was the year she was the Grand Marshal of the Sturgis Motorcycle Rally. So Jess and I rode from with a group of girls from Los Angeles to Sturgis and back again. So that's a, a memory I'll have you know, for the rest of my life, my favorite ride with Jess. But, you know, it couldn't always keep up with her on two wheels or four. We sure had some great times. So, Mr. How, how have you dealt with this? You know, Jesse and I were close and I was able to, you know, we, we talked a lot about her mission and, you know, so many of us that anybody that was lucky enough to come across Jesse Combs in the in the race world, in the motorcycle world, wherever she played, it was they, they could tell that she was something special and she was a trailblazer and a pioneer. And so I think that though I lost my best friend, that a, a translation into forward momentum and how to how to continue honoring Jesse and, and the path that she was on and the difference she was making in the world in so many different ways. And so that's that's how I um, was fortunate enough to, to be alongside a group of six other people that serve on the, the Jesse Combs Foundation board. You know, we, we got together and talked about the, the things that the mission that Jesse had in, in general and came up with our mission, which is to educate, inspire and empower the next generation of female trailblazers. Um, and we all know that that Jesse was a, a trailblazer herself and a, and a pioneer. I know losing someone so important to you in life and at the time that you lost them and how hard that is in dealing and struggling with that. And I'm just absolutely amazed and impressed with the wherewithal of all of the board there at the JCF that in just a few short months, you guys have taken what was, you know, back of the napkin ideas that Jesse had for what she wanted her, I guess, philanthropy to be in life. And to now posthumously, her friends have joined together, banded together and are picked up her torch and are carrying it forward. I find that exceptionally cool that you guys are able to do that in such short order. Yeah, thanks, Wyatt. That's a great point. You know, we're an interesting and eclectic group of of business professionals, off road racers. Um, you know, all all people that were connected to Jesse in some way or another, and that she trusted and and that had inspired in some ways. So the seven of us, um, you know, we're <laughs> what I'd want people to know is we we are a young organization in this foundation that none of us expected to be here six months ago. Um, so that was you know in. We've shifted. It's it's been a, a learning process, but you know we're all rooted in in our mission and what Jesse we hope Jesse would have wanted, and so we're we're rooted in our mission. We have our strategy. We've got our forward momentum, but again, we are a young organization, and so I want 
what I'd like the audience to know is to keep an eye on us as we as we grow and we've got the support of Jesse's family behind us, all of her communities that she was connected with, whether that be off-road racing or um, motorcycling or um, the trades and, and her metal fabrication, so many different arenas she played in it, honestly, I, the more I learn. But yeah, so we are, we're young, we're, we're rooted in carrying her mission forward. So keep an eye on us. And really our King of the Hammers presence is an example of that. So we're, we want everybody to, to stop by and see us. We're gaining awareness right now. So we'll have a booth on Lake Bed foundation booth is located on Amsel Avenue at the corner of Amsel Ave and Warren Way, kind of behind the Fox Chalks booth area. We'll be there with Jesse Combs Foundation merchandise, and that's also where you would sign up for the Raceathon. I know, Wyatt, you've covered that in, in past podcasts. That's where you can stop by and see us and learn more and sign up. Oh, Dana. Yes. I love that you guys have a booth down there. It's going to be really cool. You kind of touched on a little bit about how new the organization is, how young you are. I, I started down that path and I know things haven't solidified or cemented yet as far as what you guys are going to do with proceeds of donations and where you're focused. But some of the stuff I've seen you guys focused on and helping and empowering young, young ladies into the trades or into scholarships. I'm really excited to follow along with that and see where those shape up because the stuff that I have heard has just been absolutely banging out of the park. Amazing. So I, you've got me, I'm going to be listening. Awesome. Yeah. Cause again, back to those three pillars, you'll see us in, in those three different areas of educate, inspire and empower. And so for, you know, empowering the next generation in but via grants to female females in the trades. Um, we'll, you'll also see us partnering with other female groups and organizations that Jessie supported herself. So um, there's a group of all-female motorcyclists uh, called Babes Ride Out that you guys may or may not have heard of if you're familiar in that space. Jessie was a, a pioneer and an inspiration in the, in the motorcycle world and brought all that to Babes Ride Out events twice a year. So you'll see us working with those, those women to kind of continue her mission and the building the next generation of female motorcyclists. Well, awesome, Dana. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for joining me. Everybody, swing by the Jesse Combs Foundation booth there off uh, Warren Way and Amsoil. Appreciate it. We'll see you guys on the lake bed. Thanks, Wyatt. Now to return to the previously scheduled program with Dave Cole. So you and Jeff got together and you busted this race out. He joined you basically, you know, after 2007, you guys worked through 08 and then you guys were partners up until when, about 2011, 2010? I don't remember when the split was. I think it was after the 2011 race. I can't even really remember anymore. I, I want to say after the 11 race, that I think is right. Maybe it was 10. I'm not sure. It's been you at the head since. Yeah, another thing I didn't, I, it's pretty funny is Jeff and I, and that's good that we're friends now. We've had the opportunity to hang out and talk a whole bunch lately. And um, he came to King of the Hammers last year. He's coming back coming back this year. But um, we would fight tooth and nail over the smallest details. But in the end, the product was really good because we beat the crap out of each other to get it there. It wasn't like you make up a dumb idea or run with it and you find out afterwards, oh, that was a pretty dumb idea. We would beat the crap out of each other's ideas and literally each other until... The product was so refined before it rolled out that it, we were on it. And uh, when we got to the point of actually separating ways, it just it just happened. And I agreed to buy. I mean, he, he wanted to buy me out and I didn't want to go anywhere and we went back and forth on it. And eventually we agreed upon a number and I didn't have any money <laughs> again, but I bought him out and I went for it. I quit my job at that point. I actually had a real good job at that point, but I quit my job and here we are. I love it. I mean, that's just going for it. Seeing the ring and going for the ring. Yeah. 
before we fall too far down the the hammer's path, I want to go down not necessarily a tangent, but I want to talk about you are a formidable competitor. You love to race. You are a great desert racer. You've got a bunch of wins under your belt. You're not able to race your own series, kind of. <laughs> That's I'm, I'm I am the winningest driver in Ultra Four history. Oh my god! Oh. <laughs> I literally have won every single race I've entered. And I'm never going to race again. I'm retired. So I win every single time I come up to the start line in Ultra 4. I can hear JT's head exploding right JT. now. I can I'm hear it. Like it's, I would, it sucks is that there's going to be people out there that are listening to this that don't know me. They're like, what a conceited bastard. I'm saying this for JT. Oh. I'm, I, it's, <laughs> so, but yes, no, I've been, I love racing. Uh, I have been very fortunate to have opportunities to go racing. I have found success at times. I've I've wrecked a lot of cars. I've blown up a lot of stuff and but you know, I mean, thanks for thanks to JT, I got to go play at Pikes Peak. That was a life experience. Um I've won a couple couple races in Nora. I've now I've just got done winning the Baja one thousand and I think I think more harder than winning the Baja 1000 in a smaller class coming in third in the 500 in a spec truck is probably the best accomplishment I've ever done as far as proving that I'm not just a fluke. Um, and Pat Sims's truck, I had a wonderful opportunity to race with Pat Sims, who's a great guy. At WFO Racing out of New Mexico. WFO Racing, yep. So, you know, I've, I'm, uh, I don't know, it's fun. I just enjoy competing. I, I, it goes back to the, goes back to the same kind of camaraderie, right? You're racing against guys and girls. And you're out there just doing it and laying it all out there. And I mean, almost everybody that's probably listening to this probably feels the same way about racing. It's just, it's just a, a pretty incredible experience. So um, if at the end of the day, I'll only get to go do that and I get to do that because I do this, I'll keep doing this so I can go do that. So you, you did just win the thousand in one of the Jeep Gladiators. I did. Yes. How fun was that? It was, it's it, again, it's the adventure. I mean, I, uh, I wish that we could find more ways to provide that to our patrons, our clients, our racers, that, that advent, I guess King of the Hammers probably does it, but not as much as Baja is. I mean, Baja, Baja's like, it's mythical and legendary and wonderful and incredible and dangerous and awesome and everything at once. And, and tacos, lots of tacos. And tacos. Hey, we're going to have tacos this year. So that's good. So you said to me, well, I called you and you said to me, this is Prit Thal. And you said, hey, so if I win the mill, can I be on your show? And I yeah, said, I'm I mean, earn it, right? I said, yeah, go win it and let's talk. You, I was <laughs> so, going to so have yeah. was... did it just for you. I dedicate that victory to Wyatt. I mean, Doug, Doug, no, Wyatt Pemberton. JT, can you go get him a bigger shovel to shovel the shit he's still <laughs> over here? <laughs> The little shovel is just not doing it. I my head's still above the pile. No, that was an outstanding win, and you called it. You're like Babe Ruth. You called you called the victory, and you went down, and you you made it happen. We worked our butt off. That that's that was a great another team effort. It's a great team built a great car. I got to race that with a guy that never raced before, Doug Seward, and it's crazy experience. He's the guy that ends up being the regional director for Habit Burger. So now we're gonna have Habit Burger on the lake bed this year. So we're gonna have pretty awesome food and everything. But I also got to race with the kid. Bailey got to Bailey. I gave Bailey the crappiest segment. Get in the car in San Matias at two o'clock in the morning and deliver it in San Felipe at seven o'clock in the morning. Good luck. Have fun. And he did it. I mean, it was a couple hours late, but he did the whole thing with no steering and and uh, he delivered the car. And and I did my part. And everybody did their jobs. We had a wonderful team, and we won. And now he's 21 years old, 22 years old, and has a Baja Championship to his resume. Yep. 
Yeah, that's pretty okay. solid. Jumping back to Pat Sims, that crazy yeah. cowboy, he's nuts. I, I love him. Uh, he runs around Texas enough. I ran into him in some just random gas stations in West Texas. There's Pat Sims. It's, he pops up many places. You raced with him in his uh, his spec truck. Yep. And I know something happened to you. You got injured. You got hurt. I Yeah, it, I've, I've recovered. Turns out I've, I've recovered from it. But yes, I uh, Texas Jesus is my co-driver. And we got buckled in. It's the first time I raced in Pat's car. And it might have been the first time I ever drove Pat's car was at the start line of the 500. I can't remember if I had any time. I didn't have a JTT shake. I had never been in the car before. And I'm at the start line. He did, Pat asked me to start the race. So I'm starting the 500. We started 19th off the line, 20th off the line. And I'm sitting at the start line. And I go to tighten down the belts for the first time. And it's like, you're ready to go. I'm like, oh, crap. And it didn't feel great. Like it was the belts were not adjusted appropriately. Specifically, the sub belt was a little tight in my nether regions. But we were at the start line and it was time to go. And everything was okay till we hit the first whoop. And I kind of slid forward in the seat and I realized that um, one of my boys was on one side of the sub belt and the other was on the other side of the sub belt. (laughs) And, And it was really uncomfortable and it always it hurt worse when i hit the brakes which is a good thing because i don't really hit the brakes very often but um unless your tush is on fire but yeah it was it was a bad experience and i wasn't didn't really fit in the car obviously because the belts didn't fit me either and so my legs were all cramped up and you know my testicles are not happy and but we went from uh whatever 20th starting position we were in third by race mile 110 on course third third on course and we uh, got fortunate in some silt beds. We did a lot of pre-running. I love the pre-running. I love pre-running. I love figuring out where you're going to get it on people. And we knew where the spot was, and we got it on people, including Brian Trotter. I hope you're listening, Trotter, but I passed you there in that silt bed. just want to say that again. We, I couldn't stop. I mean, we couldn't. We were racing. You don't stop. It doesn't make a difference where you're, where you're, what your uncomfort level is. And, but between my legs being cramped up and not fitting the seat right and everything being wrong, by the time I got out of the car, I couldn't stand up. I mean, like, they literally pulled me out of the car, dropped me on the ground, did the whole pit stop, and drove away. And I'm still laying on the ground, like, full-on fetal position, trying to tell them what I was experiencing in the car. But I'm, like, barely even getting audible sounds out of my mouth. It was bad. But I gave him, I gave Pat the card in third place. He delivered to the finish line in third place, and we got ourselves a trophy. And that was pretty cool. How long until you walked right again? Well, it was a few days, you know, maybe I had to do some intensive physical therapy, but that's a completely different show that <laughs> I shouldn't talk about here. But uh, yeah, solo Good. therapy or did JT help? No, no, no. That's doing it wrong. <laughs> First, go ahead. Next. Oh, man. I do like your race resume. You've uh, you've had the opportunity to really knock out some some pretty badass races. But here at Nationals, you raced in one of your own races in one of your own classes. How was that? That was cool. Um, that was a le- like truly last minute uh, deal. Um, Dustin Friesen called me up and said he can't. Actually, called my kid and wanted my kid to race. And Bailey actually thought of me and said, you know, this is a. If you ever thought about it, this is your opportunity because I can I can fit in Dustin's car. I don't fit in a lot of cars. I can fit in Dustin's car, and it's a good car. And so I called JT and asked him what he thought about it. And he actually had some reservations. So I called every single person in the class and just asked them straight up, "Are you going to have a problem if I do this?" And uh, they were all super cool about it. And I thought, this is it. I mean, there's only there's 14, 15 cars in the class. It, I wasn't going to be truly upset in the apple cart too much. I didn't think I'd be that competitive. I thought I could go be on the course and have fun. And, it ended, I ended up being incredibly sick that weekend, like full-on pneumonia. And I didn't even make the prelims. I couldn't make it. And since I was a substitute driver, 
they couldn't have a second substitute driver for the first substitute driver. So no one ran in the prelims. I had to start from the back of the pack. And I just, uh, you know, I went out there and we got fortunate. A couple guys that, you know, should have been winning that race had some bad breaks. And I tried to keep it together for the first couple of laps. And all of a sudden I found ourselves in the lead and it just kind of went with it. Cool. And hung with it. That was very cool. So one entry, one win, one and done. Yep. And retired. 100% podium rate. You will never see me in a 4400 race again. Or in a Ultra 4 race again. That sounds like a challenge. I don't think so. I think by the time that I'm out of out of running the business, the only race I'd ever race in is King of the Hammers. And by the time I'm out of running the business, like where I'm no longer, it wouldn't be fair. I mean, I'm making the course now. I mean, we're, I'm coming up with the course. If I got to the point that I was no longer involved in any of that stuff, I'd probably be too old to get into a race car anyway, at least, and be competitive at it. And I, I think I hate losing more than I love racing. So, But you've thought about it. I've run the course many times. Like been out here in when I've had good cars, I've run the course when there's nobody out here. And if you don't think I've looked at the times and figured out where I'd be, you're out of your mind. Exactly where I was going. I know you. You love numbers. <laughs> you love. Them. I know where I. I know where I stack up. I know there's guys that are way better than me. You know, I've been. I was fortunate in that race, and I've been fortunate in some desert races. And and quite honestly, for the that's why I think Spec Truck Third is more more important than my wins have been with the exception of Pikes Peak I think I've only been racing in like you know max like eight nine ten car fields and that's not knocking anybody that wins anything but when you're racing against 30 or 40 guys and in the case of 4400 you're racing against 100 100 best drivers out there that's when your win really matters and I don't I'm not that fast I can't go to with Shannon Campbell or Lauren Healy I don't have that skill I don't have that commitment the the talent any of it those guys some there's some amazing talent in the sport these days you're damn right there is they're and they're killing it and they're up in their game every single day they wake up and figure out a different way to make either their partners happier their their sponsors their yep. race team their family they are at it every day to make that car a little it's, bit quicker make their program a little bit more successful just the concept of saying the race program for an ultra four guy think about it, 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 it's pretty dumb to think about if you really sit back and think about where we came from when when there was arguments about do we really have to have fire suits? Do I really have to wear a? I mean, I, you mean I can't wear a motorcycle helmet? What's the head and neck restraint for? Why do I need that? Like those are all things we had to fight through to get where we're at now. Fuel cells. And those fights were not that many years ago. Within no, the last decade, within yes. the last ten years, yes, yes. So to go from there to well, I've been working in my social media consultant, and we've got these lifestyle branding events that we're working on to further expose the. Blah, 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 And I'm a race car driver. It's like, we've come pretty far away. And it's been amazing to watch. It's been amazing to watch the drivers embrace that, embrace those opportunities, and understand the ramifications of all those efforts aside from just pressing the go pedal. And they're doing it on, I mean, we try to give them some tools, but these guys are well beyond. It's cool. It's, it's, it's awesome to see. And at the same time, it's still all families. It's still all people just hanging out and doing it because they love it. It's just guys that are trying to leverage what they do and try to get a few bucks for it. Yeah, and if you talk to any of these guys that have, you know, that I've had on this show, you know, like Jason Shearer last week, he's still a family guy. Just yep. right down to it. Lauren Healy's still just ultimate family guy. Miller, Miller's got a new baby he brings to every single race. I mean, just these these front runners. Yep. I, yeah, it's it is impressive. But yeah, like you said, media branding and where this sport has gone in such short order has just been <laughs> nothing short of remarkable. But that said, the Ultra 4, King of the Hammers, Hammer King brand, you've taken that thing global. Yeah, 
Yeah. <laughs> Again, it's just you keep if you if you don't ever say no, you'll find out you'll you'll end up being spread pretty thin and go pretty far places. You know, you guys build courses in Europe. You got some stuff in Australia, New Zealand, then everything here in the states. I mean, how many races did you guys put on this year? Including the the Titan UTV race, which is an example of Dave, you're an idiot. And I love Titan, and I love the UTV guys. Neither one of those are the problem. It was just, and I think it's you know, there's you can segue this into three different conversations. But this is one of the reasons why I hired Ryan was because I kept coming up with stupid ideas, and I would foist my my stu- stupid ideas on my unwilling accomplices and say, "Go figure it out." And you end up, you know, you end up burning out of Jeremy Dickinson, unfortunately, and you end up putting JT in a self-induced coma called Jack Daniels, and you do you do dumb things that you don't realize. You don't think you just keep trying to go forward, and you don't realize you're blowing. You're, the valves are already floating, and you're almost out of fuel, and you're on red line. And I don't look, I don't look at the gauges enough. At what point did you realize? You made a statement, unless you're going to double back and tell me that this this was crazy, but you made the statement that you would never have more than one class. I did say that. How many months between that statement and the point where we started divvying up classes? Two years? Three years? It wasn't long. Well, I can tell you, this will give you an idea of how people, how how I end up doing things. Literally, we went from zero classes on Monday of Easter Jeep Safari in Moab, and on Tuesday... Mm-hmm. Walking around Easter Jeep Safari in Moab with Chris Bolger, Chris said something along the side effect of, man, if we could get some stock Jeeps racing, we'd probably get more of these bolt-on park guys to want to be involved sponsoring. It'd be a lot easier to sell because Chris was selling marketing and that stuff. We'd get some of these Jeep guys, but none, none of these race cars run bumpers or this or that. And so Bolger's, this is on Tuesday. At this, this is really cool. I haven't thought about this in a long time. Tuesday at Easter Jeep Safari, Bolger says, this will be cool. Wednesday night, we sat in Danny Grimes' living room after I walked around the show that day and said, hey, can you come to Danny Grimes' house tomorrow night? I got a dumb idea. Literally, same conversation as every other dumb idea. People and I and, was fucking writing down the room. JT came in and Greg Mulkey and I think Lance King from King Shocks was actually there. And like some heavy hitters from the industry agreed to come and sit and drink beers in Danny Grimes' living room while there was a party happening outside. And we hatched the modified class, the Legends class, and the stock class. That's on... so. Tuesday is the idea, the existence of the concept. Wednesday, we have class rules. Friday, we announced it. And that, I mean, literally announced the, the entire changing of the dynamic of where we're going as a racing organization. And we did it all in three days to the point of announcing, here's your rules. So we tend to move really fast. And once we decide to go a given direction, we go really fast that direction. I like to use this phrase, inflection point. And that was a massive inflection point in the success of the series and the success of Hammer King and the success of this event. 100% because two two reasons. Everything that we hoped it to be, right? It was the stock class and modified have, have attracted OEM sponsors. They've attracted more industry sponsors that make, make those parts. We've been able to get more people involved at a lower price point without having the fear of risk or, or the fear of I'm, I can't hang with Lauren Healy or Eric Miller or those guys, but I can but I can go do this and this is more my speed. And then the Legends class I mean, I'm not talking crap, but that's exactly what we hoped it to be. We hoped it would be a combination of new guys coming in that could afford to do it and other guys that had their car outlived its useful lifespan as a 4,400 car, didn't have the money to build a new car, and wanted to keep racing. And the reality is you you can look at, there's 85 Legends cars racing King of the Hammers this year, and 40 of them are cars that, maybe it's 65, I don't know, there's a lot of 
Legends cars, a lot of them. And 40 of them are people that, that uh, probably wouldn't be racing at all anymore if it wasn't for the Legends class. And that's, you know, it's kind of another an ironic, funny thing, as I get a kick out of people telling me, let me tell you how to save the Legends class. It's like, oh, really? You want to tell me how to save the class that is exponentially growing every year? Please do tell. Tell me how to... And there's like... I think you get the trickle-down effect of technology from the 4400s as they continue to push the envelope. Every single year, you continue to slowly have that waterfall trickle-down effect into that class. Don't get me wrong. There are people out there building dedicated new 4800 cars and pushing the rule envelope, but there's still a place for the 4400. We were able to to, um, build a set of rules that's kind of to the test of time a little bit. The really big change has been, I mean, you think about it. I remember before we even did the EMC stuff, we had already done UTVs and watching the UTVs and what that's gone for, gone from in the same, the same thing we talked about 4,400 guys and everybody else and the way they've stepped up their game. The UTV class is insane. The, the amount of talent racing and the, the, the level of, of uh, performance of the vehicles from when we started racing UTVs to now is I mean, the stuff that people are making now, it's crazy. And then the and the level of talent of people deciding that that's the path that I'm going to race. I mean, Phil Burton could be winning 4,400 races. Phil Burton is a professional UTV racer. And that is really cool. That is really cool. It's not a, it's just a kid that wants to stick around here until he gets someplace else. UTV is the, is the end. It's the top of the line. It's the top of the pyramid for many guys. All good, very valid things to discuss when I ask you the question about classes. But for a second, let's talk about your team. You added Ryan Thomas this year. He's taking yep. over uh, your role as president of Ultra 4 Racing. Actually, he just got fired because there was only one rule with this this new trailer I got, and that was Don't the pisser in the front is my pisser, and there's a pisser in the back because it's a toy hauler, and all the guests piss in the back. And he just went and pissed in my brand, well, brand new 2011 trailer. So I'd like to announce the fact that we're looking for a new president. My um, Felicia. <laughs> it's nice knowing him. So Ryan Thomas, uh, I've been fortunate to know him for a few years. And literally over the past two, I think we've seemed to bump into each other more often. And it was pretty crazy. I mean, this is actually kind of a long, a, a weird long story. And I not to throw stuff under, but I already decided that I was going to make this move, this conceptual move of having somebody else kind of take over the business. And it started after getting sick, realizing that we built this really cool machine. All these people have invested their entire lives and their livelihoods and everything into racing. And if I just sit around here like I'm my own little king and my own little monarch little world, thinking that life is great and I'll just keep doing this until I die and who cares what happens after I die, then that's really selfish and really dumb. So I knew that I needed to have a succession plan. And I also know that the best leaders, in my view, are people that get better and smarter people and surround themselves with better people. Alan Johnson's got a really cool line. If he's the smartest person in the room, he's in the wrong room. And that's really cool is I've, the people that we have work for us are world class. I am thankful for both the level of talent and the level of passion and effort that people bring to this job every day. So in the trailer tonight, you've got you, Ryan, JT... I and know Tra- Scott, Scott Hartman, oh, Travis Walter. Scott Hartman was there a little bit ago. Hartman left, and but Travis Walter's here, which Travis Walter is the person that no one knows, and Travis Walter is probably as responsible for the success of King of the Hammers as any other human being. Fact. And he's never driven a race car. He's never been a course marshal. He's never designed a course. He's never done a single thing that has ever affected anything on the racetrack. 
and he might be the most single important person in the history of our, our, our event. Elaborate. He's the smart guy that makes all the electrons go the right way that make the live show work and all our TV stuff. And he's also the, he's the smart guy that does that, and he's the really stupid guy that continues to answer the phone when I call him up and say, hey, I want to do live from an inflatable weather balloon. Why can't we use weather balloons to put omnidirectional microwave antennas in the sky, and we'll use that to propagate our signal around the lake bed? That won't work because you're an idiot. But if we do this, that might work. Give me a second. I'll call you back. And he's kind of like Wayne with mechanical stuff. Travis is the Wayne of electrons. You know how Wayne will you'd be like, Wayne, I want to do a shock and I want to mount it sideways attached to the sidewall of my tire. Yeah, I can do that. And if I tell Travis that I want to do live in car and I want to base it off the lights on the short course. Yeah, I think we can do that. But we can't have this part. But if I buy a 3D printer, I can make the part and I'll make it work. Literally, he's done that. The batteries that we use to run the track lights are just uh, tool batteries, like they're like a like a Makita battery. I think it's actually a Dewalt battery. It's a Makita, and but you couldn't buy the female end of the uh, where the to you know to receive the power from the battery. You couldn't buy that to just be a, a place to have power come out of it. So we he bought a three D printer and he made the female end to get power out of batteries. And it's a dual thing, so we can hot swap batteries. And he's a he's a badass dude, and he keeps accepting stupid challenges. So he's my kind of badass dude. Talking about the track lighting. Travis, why have we not seen this product out there for sale? I think there's a lot of people that could use that as just a base product that they could wire into other items. Because I don't let tra- Travis talk to people. <laughs> <laughs> if Travis, if anybody else found out that Travis could do cool stuff, Travis would do less cool stuff for me. Us. Point made, point Us. taken. So we put him in a room, we lock him in a cage, we make him do cool stuff, and occasionally we let him see the day of the light of day. I love it. He's the captain of propeller heads. Oh, I, lo- I love JT's words. Hey, JT, I actually used uh, the word FABA in a sentence this week, and the guy I was talking to fell out of his chair, like literally yep. fell out of his chair. It was uh, outstanding. Oh, Travis is not a FABA. No, don't get me wrong. Travis will go out there and hike to the top of the mountains to put the microwave dishes up. The FABA, the king of the FABAs is camo. Well, where I was going with that was JT's words. JT has names for everybody. You know, the propeller heads, Travis propeller head, FABAs. Yep. We're propagating JT's words across the globe. It's uh, it's actually a sad day, sad day for mankind. Yeah. So KOH 2020, we're on the precipice. Yeah. Any uh, any problems? Any issues? Any cruxes? Anything you want to share with the drivers, the field, this audience? When's this air again? This airs the Monday before Hammers Week starts. The Monday the before the Monday before Hammer Week starts. So not this so like coming 20, Monday. Twenty yeah. seven. That's correct. So if I were to tell you the entire course right now, then people would get like a four-day jump on that. That is correct. Oh, nope. <laughs> they would hear it while they were driving out to the hammers, and that's yeah. it. So if you were, if you were, no idea, go from the east coast. <laughs> oh, I, I, I like the idea of that. Um, oh, <laughs> they, they can't get it from the BLM anymore. That loophole has been closed. Why well, it's thinking ratings right now and 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 downloads? Guacamole and Bender Alley. Lost Canyon. They don't know where Lost Canyon is. And the is. Fork. Those are four new trails. And then I can edit in where JT told me they are. <laughs> well, JT doesn't know where they're at either. JT JT prides himself on being like the guy out there doing it. You realize that JT goes out around the corner just far enough that we can't see him and then calls people that actually know where they're going and then he comes back <laughs> with the answer. 
I call Mark Matthews. I'm like, help me, please. <laughs> JT's JT's way of yeah, JT's way of mapping a course is to drive this cell phone bush and call Mark Matthews. <laughs> That's JT's version of mapping a course. That's the reason why mile one through seventy three is sixty feet from the start line. There's a big stack of markers right there. He doesn't know where to go. It makes it faster. Plus, he can't count to 73, even if it's sitting there right in front of him. But I love him. I love him. Everybody should have a friend like that. I Make have sure. no idea how I'm going to edit out all this giggling and laughter. It's it's Why the, would it's you why would edit it out? It's real. Uh, it, it, <laughs> because driving down the these guys driving down the highway, they're going to listen and be like, oh, man, I, I don't even know what they're laughing. They're just laughing. It sounds like they're laughing at dead air at this point. But in fact, I'm you sorry. guys should be laughing at JT right now. Like that's Start the default laugh at JT. <laughs> What's, so I mean, JT had dropped it a little bit. You had dropped it a little bit on the live show the other night. But yeah, there's there's four new trails. Guacamole being number one. They all need some traffic on them though, right? We're gonna try to get a bunch of traffic on them. Hammers week. Try to get some of those rocks knocked down. No, come on. They're gonna get traffic. They're gonna be really raceable. We want them to be big, huge holes and cause massive problems. At Lost Canyon's not gonna get knocked down. Lost Canyon is going to mess people up. Lost Canyon has never been driven up ever by anyone in the history of anyone rock crawling. No one's ever driven up that trail and you're going to go down it and they're going to be thankful when they get to the bottom. And we've never some Bender Alley and they're going to be thankful when they get out of Bender Alley. They're going to be thankful they get to Wrecking Ball. When you look forward to getting to Wrecking Ball, you know you're in a, in a tough trail. Literally stuck between a rock and a hard place. <laughs> Yep. I do like the plans. JT had dropped a bunch of those plans on me. I wish I knew where they were. Uh, I, it's, I don't visualize the, the hammers map the same way you guys do. If you tell me what mountain it's at and how many little cuts over, I can get that But based on names. So it was total great information, JT. Totally, totally lost on me. And it was not on the show. Yeah, we were, we were in my truck cruising on the highway. Hey, we've kind of talked a little bit about 2020. You dropped a little bit. On the live show, you dropped a lot of information about not just one big screen this year. What, seven? Is that what I heard? Seven big screens? I don't even know anymore. I think we picked up another one today. The big screen that we used to have is actually going to be in the middle of the short course so the guys from the pit can watch it. We'll have at least one by the fire. There might be two by the fire, and there'll be one on the music stage. There's one at back door, and there's at least one at Chocolate Thunder, maybe two. And Travis is looking at me like, you don't have the power for that, Dave. You're an idiot. And Ryan's wondering where the money's coming from. <laughs> hey, what's cooler than two, when three Jumbotrons? Five Seven. Jumbotrons. <laughs> yeah. You did away with the very large big tent, the main tent, and we've got some smaller tents. Which is how I'm subsidizing my Jumbotron fetish. <laughs> Ryan, thank you very much. Because Ryan's concerned about the dollar amount that I'm spending on Jumbotrons. But we saved $38,000 on a tent that we use for four hours in events. So, see, I'm not that dumb. I like it. Making value. Just creating value. By the way, Cody Wagner, I'm going to drop Cody Wagner in here. He has a camera turned from Lasertown down the road there, pointed at Hammertown, from Lasertown pointed at Hammertown, and every day he's given a you know snapshot update of what it looks like you guys building from a distance. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Does, any, does anybody else think that Cody Wagner is Ultra Four's version of Howard Hughes? He's just getting more eccentric. He is such a cool cat, does really cool stuff. Man, have you been in Lasertown? That is an amazing place. It's like your own little oasis in the middle of... It's a, He did good. And it's starting to resemble Slab City. Slab City? I don't know what Slab City is. Kind of down there near uh, the Salton Sea, southeast oh. of Palm Springs, out in the middle of nowhere. Well, yeah, but that's just that's just an abandoned ghost town. No, Laser Town is like, no, man, that's not abandoned. No, no, but with, with weird, with weird eclectic artsy, oh, yeah, 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 pa no, yeah, pastels, multiple back walls of Seven Elevens. Headless mannequin as a as a uh, 
Christmas ornament on his Christmas tree. It's just, yeah, it's just uh, odd, odd, oddly awesome. I'm pretty excited to see Cam Steele driving his car with Wayne Israelson in the passenger seat and seeing how they do against the field. Cam, we talked about him a little bit earlier in the show, but him in that car. He'll be top five going into lap three. Hey, we take those odds to Vegas. All right, Dave, I'm going to open it up to you. Soapbox, soapbox time. Soapbox time. This is you. Anything you want to talk about? Oh, man, I don't, I don't do that well. I don't know. Give me a topic, any topic. I'll pontificate. Well, I, I think this is correct. I could be wrong because I've been wrong about many, many things with you tonight. So why stop and be right now? But you're wanting to uh, get your pilot's license, start flying? Oh, that's just a dumb dream. I I don't have the money to have a plane. I don't have the, and the talent to fly. I mean, I can barely drive a car. And at least when I crash, I just fall over. If I crash a plane, you're just dead. And worse, you might hurt somebody else. And that's no fun. I would like the freedom of that. I would like to learn how to do it. Or I would... I'd probably be the guy that would go get a pilot's license and go through all the effort to get it and have all the experiences of getting it and probably never, ever fly my own plane because I just, A, don't have a plane, and B, would probably screw it up. Check the but, boxes. But uh, JT figures out he's going to kill me. He's going to let me fly his own plane, and then <laughs> I'll die doing that. But but that's how every race member dies is flying their own plane, so this is my certain fate. Yeah, I don't I'll know. do it. You know, I, I like freedom and stuff like that. I'll probably end up just... Uh, Finding a place within sight of the ocean in Mexico and disappear, and no one will see me again. Right next to me. Right next to JT. JT will see me because he'll be my neighbor. In Baja? We're actually life partners. Something that I probably should go ahead and put out there now. <laughs> that uh, JT and I have had this secret relationship. It's completely platonic and asexual, but, man, it's really sweet. I have no words. Drop the mic. I'm glad you guys finally, finally, I've, I've been holding this secret for you guys for so many years and now it's out. Yep. There you go. No, man. I, I don't, I think the thing is, I, I don't know. Um, hold on, hold some- on, Dave, Dave. I don't mean to interrupt. Do you, can you hear that in the background? No. I think that's hearts breaking across the country that they just found out JT's into dudes. Just, just women's hearts breaking all over. Hey, Pemberton, I know where you live. I will come end you. <laughs> You asked me a couple things, like things I learned uh, in that in your questionnaire. Yeah. Free parts are the most expensive ones. Absolutely. Most expensive parts you'll ever get are the ones that are free. Don't ever rep someone or mar- or you know don't ever represent someone or you know be, don't ever take a sponsorship for a part that you wouldn't pay with your own money because it's really hard to fake genuine authenticity of actually caring about that product. And if you break it, you'll end up being pissed off and think that you should have won the race because you would have had a different product. Go with the parts that you would have already, that you would have bought with your own money. If that part maker is willing to have you support them, then yay you. Having a conversation with Lauren Healy about that, Lauren actually did exactly that. He took the the free parts, built the car out of them, didn't believe in them, and he had a disastrous season. I think it was like his 2012 or 2013 season, and it was a disaster. Nothing worked together, nothing worked, and he ended up going and buying the right stuff and putting the right stuff into a car and came back and that car was the red dragon that he replaced it with. And what happened, yep. we all know the, the dragon, the dragon won everything that first year it was out. So yep. if anyone wants you know proof in the pudding or you know, proof of the, the statements you just made, we can point at Lauren Healy's laid it out. Here's the test beta right here. You can look at it. And then uh, don't forget that we all started doing this for fun. Every one of us, no matter what it was, whether it's Travis doing what he's doing with Electron stuff or JT or I racing and Ryan's a racer and Ryan's won a bunch of Baja races. We all started doing this for fun and none of us are getting rich at all, not even close. In fact, well, you know, you know, those old adage, the best way to make a million dollars racing is to start with $10 million. 
if you can keep in perspective that you're doing this for fun, then it's okay to lose some money doing it because while you're doing this, you're gambling in Vegas or you're taking really expensive vacations or whatever you choose to do with your money. This is just a way to do it and have incredible life experiences that you'll remember till long after you can't do them anymore. And your name's in the Alfred Hall of Fame. Uh, yeah, in the case of Shannon Campbell, yeah. I mean, he's, a, he's, our, he's our Hall of Famer. He's the guy. Do you not think that your name will be on that list? No. No, nor should it be. It shouldn't be. That's, a, that's not realistic. It's not anywhere with reason. It's not motivation for me. I've been fortunate to be on the board of directors for the Hall of Fame, and I, I'm happy that exists, but that's not why I did any of this stuff. And Oh, Dave, that's, that wasn't my point at all. My, my point was I believe anyone that should be in the Offred Hall of Fame or any Hall of Fame for any sport or whatever that it, or genre that there's a Hall of Fame for, it's for people that have unmeasurable impact on that genre. And we can chart. Did you just call me fat? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Unmeasurable. That's what I said. Mark my word. Unmeasurable <laughs> impact. Yes. This wasn't a belly flop contest. No tsunami. Oh, you can really? delete that. Take you delete it out. That, that is your delete moment. Everything else you keep that goes away. <laughs> that you have made an impact on off-road motorsports. Desert cars were doing their thing. Desert cars were being evolved. They've evolved over fifty years. We were running air shocks on cars twelve years ago in rock sports. Leaving the start line of your race on air shocks. Now look where we're at. Now we're seeing the trickle back in JT and I've talked to the, I've talked about with many people. The trickle back from Ultra Four back to the trophy trucks. They're all wheel drive, four wheel drive, that technology going backwards. That technology wasn't gonna happen on its own without us sitting there proving it out in Ultra Four. And I think you are a part to that. You can be humble and wanna sidestep that, but you've created the vehicle by which a massive glut of innovation has happened. Well, cool. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, that, man. That's I... the exact re reaction I expect from you. But hey, that's <laughs> just my words, my opinion, but I know that's a lot of people have the same opinion. I know. I appreciate that, man. I just, I think there's, as much as I am, I am pretty cocky and I'm pretty arrogant. And a lot of that just because I refuse to fail. I think people confuse my lack of desire to stop or my unwillingness to accept somebody else telling me their their truth as cocky when it's I'm not really I'm really not cocky. I, I'm not. I we joke around amongst friends, but it's just uh, I don't know. I, I think it's cool. I think what we do is cool. I think it's awesome that it's past humbling that so many amazing people have decided to spend so much of their adult lives being involved in the circus it's pretty freaking awesome and it's so exciting when i start seeing them when i start seeing them trickle in here in a couple of weeks and you just you're reunited with the people that you might see around other times but we're here now and we're on the lake bed and it's pretty cool no isn't it everyone thinks that when you make that turn on a boone road as you start to descend in the valley and you see either the dust cloud during the daytime or at night just the lights yeah <sighs> I feel the hair on the back of my neck standing up right now, just visualizing it coming up here in a few, just a few days here shortly. Well, let's just everybody go home safe and everybody be healthy and have a great time and go back and tell really cool stories. Right. So here we are. We're almost 2020 KOH. Do you have some stuff already in your head for things you want to change for 21? For 21? Yeah. Yeah, it'll be a no pre-run race. Uh, no, I don't. Honestly, I don't. I don't have anything like that. I, I'm so focused, like just completely focused on what we're doing here right now. I can't even... I can't even comprehend what we do in 2021 at this point. I'm pretty concerned about some of the things we're doing in 2020 and how they're going to affect 2021. I'm, I'm worried about music. The, the reason why I won't talk about who the bands are is because I don't want, I don't want an outside, I don't want to change the dynamic that's here. 
you want the band to play for your people, not an influx of non-community. I, I mean, I want our community to expand, but I want it to expand with people that still care about the land and still care about what we're doing. My biggest nightmare is getting people that don't know or care about the fight we've had to keep this land open and the impact of just dropping your beer can on the ground, that kind of stuff. I don't want that to happen. If we can find a way to bring more people in, educate them on how what this world is like and why it's important and what why it's, what what our accountabilities and responsibilities are, then that will be the that will be the most massive. Th- and it's kind of happened, right? I mean, you don't get seventy thousand people to show up that are just happen to be fans of the sport because they don't. There's not seventy thousand fans. We have we have ten thousand fans of the sport, sixty thousand fans of people having a good time, sixty thousand people that are fans of having a good time, and we just provide a good time. But we found a way to educate those people. And when we leave the desert, it's better off than when we got here. And I want to make sure that we don't lose that perspective when we pick up our next influx of people coming into the sport, whether it's racers or fans. On my side of the world, it feels like we are about to have like a big, massive upward breakout in Ultra 4. That's what it feels like. It, it doesn't feel like it feels like there's just more and more drivers, the expansion of classes. And as you look at, and you mentioned it, you know, how many more Legends cars, how many more UTVs, they've continued to, there's been this nice slow climb, but it really feels like it's about to pop and not, not explode pop, but I mean, explode like to the upside. I think our biggest opportunity out there, you asked 2021, actually there's an answer for that. What my focus on and where I want to be, the focus of, the focus of where I want to be is I believe that people nowadays would rather, much rather do what they do rather than watch people do what they want to do. No one wants to watch anymore. They want to do it. And I think that uh, if you, if you, the reason why King of the Hammers is popular is because people can come out here. They can watch a race if they feel like it and they can go out and wheel the trails. They can go out and have fun. They can hang out with their friends. It's a lifestyle thing. They're actually doing something. And there's that adage, you, you went to a fight and a hockey game breaks out. You heard that adage? Oh, yeah. I want, the, I want people to think I went to a camping weekend. I went to a party with my buddies and there was a race there. And if you don't want to watch the race, honestly, I don't care. I want you to come for the party, have a good time, take care of the land, have great stories and go home safe. If you don't even know there's a race happening, that's cool. And I think we're, that's where we're failing at our Ultra 4 Series races. And that's our opportunity. Again, back to our the very beginning of this conversation, all failures are just an opportunity for success. And so when I say we're failing at the other Ultra 4 races, we're doing pretty damn good. And if we can figure out how to make some of our other Series races have the same feel and growth and success that we're having at King of the Hammers, then that's when it goes from this little bonfire thing we got going to a full-blown inferno that we're spreading around the world doing it. And we've had that success in some places globally. You know, what we experienced in China was amazing. Some of the things that we've done in Europe have been pretty cool. National, I think, is a really cool event. But I just think we have a an opportunity to make them better. And that goes back to, you know, why did I bring in Ryan? Why are we expanding? Why do we do these things? And it's to get better, different perspectives and increase our skill sets as an organization so we can go out and try to make cooler things happen. That's 2021 and past. I love it. I have one parting question. Will there be a GPS coordinate released for the Easter egg fuel barrel that JT is supposed to find after the race? If, if, if No, that's not even a funny question. It's wrong. It's bad. But yeah, it sounds awesome. Yeah, let's, <laughs> let's do that. <laughs> no, that's cool. Uh, I'll be, I will fucking pick it up and bring it to your house. Yeah, we'll, we'll return to sender. Return to sender. Return Dave, to sender. did we cover everything you wanted to cover today? I want to say thank you, Wyatt. I want to say thank you to you for doing this show. It's cool. Again, this is lifestyle, right? This is giving people their fix that's not just hearing engines rev. And it's telling stories, and it's, it's 
you know, spreading knowledge and education and getting people thinking about stuff and you're celebrating people that aren't just the people that have won races, which I think is really cool. And so thank you for doing this. Thank you to, you know, the Ryan Del Ponte's of the world that, that literally just love this so much. They just do everything for it. And that's like almost all our staff. It's almost all our volunteers are the same way. So thanks for doing something cool. It's a, it is a needed and perfect fit into the, the universe that we're spinning. And uh, you did it all on your own. I mean, I didn't even know what was happening until I've only listened to the one. I listened to Wayne's. No offense. I just don't, I don't watch TV and I, I don't really do anything except for talk on the phone and break cars. <laughs> it's all I really do in the world anymore. Well, I, I think based along those lines, I picked it up to challenge myself and it has taken off. It's taken its, its own trajectory and I'm glad I'm along for the ride. Thank you for supporting it. I knew you once it became successful. Yes, you, you, I had to have you on. I could not have you on. Can't have a, this thing doesn't happen without you and everything that you've done to create this series. And that said, you created an opportunity for me with, through a couple of our discussions. The talent take is going to be at the hammers. Mm hmm. On the feed, there will be Talent Tank content. I will be out there cranking out some interviews, and they will be airing all week long. So tune in to Ultra 4 slash live. going to be fun. Yeah, man. Look forward to seeing you out here, brother. Thank you for doing this. I can't wait to see you. I'm, I'm pumped. Everyone else, safe drives. Get to the Hammer Safe. Find us in Hammertown. Say hi. Dave will remember your name from three years ago. I promise you he will. No, no that's why everybody's Bubba, dude. <laughs> so there's, there's, there's two people in this world. There's Bubba, because I recognize you, and I'm pretty sure you don't want to punch me in the face. And there's, hey, dude, and that's the guy I actually learned from Lance Clifford. The guy that walks up to me is like, Dave, and I literally couldn't place that guy for the rest of my life. Hey, dude. Bubba, if I call you Bubba, it's I recognize you. I know we've shared some kind of warm past. Everything's okay. If I just go and like walk away, I'm pretty sure you probably would have punched me. So that's why everybody's Bubba. I can't remember names. I'm horrible at it. Horrible at it. The behind the scenes information right there that you're going to get out of Dave Cole. So when you interact with him this week, Dave, thank you for coming on. Thank you, uh, your uh, your crowd of court jesters there that you got the trailer with you for uh, yeah. for for being entertaining this evening as well, giving uh, some color to uh, our dialogue. Thank you for coming on. I'll see you in a, just a few short days. Everybody, thanks for tuning in. We'll see you at the Hammers. Love you, man. Cheers. We're out. Don't go anywhere just yet. Mythbusters, KOH edition. So we've all heard the rumors, the urban legends, about booby traps being built off the start line. We've all heard rumors about who participated back in those early days of King of the Hammers. And to get to the bottom of it, I've got Cody Knoll on the phone today. Cody, how you doing? I'm great, Wyatt. How are you? Oh, man. Thank you for uh, jumping on the show and setting the record straight for us. So for our first ever The Talent Tank Fact Check, Cody Knoll is going to walk us down memory lane and take this urban legend and put color to it about what happened on that lake bed many, many moons ago. Yeah, so the booby trap story, it's uh, gone around quite a bit. I think everyone gets the years wrong. I believe it was 2008, and the reason that is is because that was the only year when my dad was running King of the Hammers with Dave that I actually got to spend the whole week on the lake bed. And so on the lake bed, I met a couple friends, and me and Bailey had been friends for a little while up to this point. And I don't know what my parents were thinking or what any of us were thinking of letting a bunch of uh, delinquent kids run around a lake bed with nothing to do. So... I asked, I actually asked permission to do this. 
uh, from my dad. I said, dad, you know, we got to, this is a race. If it's going to be a real race, we actually got to, we got to have a booby trap. So. And Cody, how old were you guys at this point in 2009, 2008? It was, it was definitely 2008. Uh, I was 12. And so there was, there's three of us. There was me, Bailey, and then uh, Kyle Galloway. And Kyle was 13, I was 12, and Bailey was 11. Oh, the plot thickens. Yeah. So we're on a lake bed, and I asked the old man, I said, hey, can I build a booby trap? We've got to have a booby trap. And he said, yeah, sure, no problem. What are they going to do with three boys and no shovel? <laughs> so we ended up actually finding a shovel, but it wasn't a real shovel. It was like one of the trench shovels, real small little guy. And that was the only shovel that we could find on the whole lake bed. And so I knew where the starting line was, and there was a nice ball crater that was kind of about the perfect shape. And we started digging, and uh, I think it was the night before the race, and we were all digging this trench, and we had to get it finished. And Billy was, you know, a little bit younger than us, so he didn't, uh, he wasn't very good at digging <laughs> at the time. <laughs> we ended up taking the shovel from us, and he kind of got mad at us, and in the hole and didn't want to be a part of it so i gotta gotta take the blame off bailey for that he's simply just guilty by association well there we go so the truth comes out there really was some clandestine efforts going on one year that you were a part two kyle galloway yeah. was a part two and bailey cole was a part two yeah poor bailey he's he still denies it to this day that he was even a part of in that trench <laughs> but i mean it was it was an impressive trench we dug probably it was probably two feet wide about a foot deep and then like probably like 10 15 feet long so it would cover the whole race course so you couldn't go around it the best part of the story was uh waking up the next morning and the racers are getting ready to go and my dad's beating on the door on the camper cody come out here what the heck did you guys do and I'm, this dad you said i could build a boot trap the shock on everyone's face when, when a bunch of kids dug that trench was actually pretty great totally worth it well hey cody thank you for coming on thank you for setting the record straight thank you for doing this very first fact check on the talent tank yeah no problem thanks for having me on i'd like to thank the sponsor of this episode the jesse combs foundation for more information about their organization please visit their website at www.thejessecombsfoundation.com Thank you for listening and taking a dive into the Talent Tank. Please like and subscribe on Instagram at the Talent Tank or our website, thetalenttank.com.